This episode of Medic Mindset is supported by iSimulate. From the very beginnings of this podcast, I've been committed to keeping Medic Mindset always and forever free. Their support allows me to do that. Thank you, iSimulate. I think that those moments are incredibly, incredibly meaningful. And the thing you have to expect that happens next is that that person is going to collapse. Right. And I have no expectations for them and how they're going to interact. And my entire role is to just be there. And that collapse, that wail, that silence, it may be of variable amount of time. And it's about just being there for them in that in that moment. The only quality improvement project I've ever done where the lone intervention was education was around termination of resuscitation. And that's when I came on as a, a medical director at an agency and I looked at their rate of transports for patients who met criteria for termination of resuscitation in the field. I realized that there was a knowledge gap of what the not only what the expectation was, but a comfort in performing this as a procedure. And so that's what we did our training on. And we went from like 90% transports to less than 5%. Human beings, I think, desire meaningful moments. As ugly as death can be, I think there is beauty to be found in allowing people to say their goodbyes in a way that respects sort of the the relationship and the love that is there. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Maya Dorsett. And longtime listeners know her well because she's the brain behind the Thinking Lift Assist episode. But if you're new to the show, I want to make sure I introduce her properly. She's an EMS medical director in Rochester, New York, board certified in emergency medicine and EMS, And of particular interest to me, she's a medical director for an initial education paramedic program. She's one of my favorite friends ever, a reader, a mom. And in this episode, she wants to teach us about communication with the loved ones of a patient who has died. What, in my opinion, has been wrongly named death notification, because it really isn't just notifying the family. This is a conversation that choreographed well can help with closure for both you and the family. And to do this, she frames that conversation as a procedure, one that has foundational principles, a procedure that needs to be practiced in simulation with feedback. She's the perfect coach on this topic because she has done it countless times as an ER doc. She's read the literature, she's taught others how to do this, and she believes that mastering this conversation can decrease burnout in providers. Here she is, Dr. Dorsett. This is the second episode where you've come up with the topic. I'm trusting you on it because the Lift Assist episode was such a hit. In fact, I think it may be my number one most listened to episode ever. Wow, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I think so. Definitely within the Thinking series. That episode, it's got a lot of quantity of listens, but I think it also was potentially system changing for some people who heard it and kind of redesigned how they dispatched to or uh, built up some protocols that maybe weren't as robust as they needed to be to uh, handle lift assist calls. So thank you. When we thought about the title, I know it's called the thinking series, but 
that episode made me think maybe it should be called the rethinking series. Ooh. Well, that episode was definitely a rethink for a lot of people, myself included, because as we recorded it, it was, uh, you brought up some points that I had never considered, which is my absolute favorite cognitive experience to think I have a mental model for something and then have somebody come along and bust it up a little bit. So thanks. Thanks for letting me talk about my favorite things. So death notification is one of your favorite things? I think favorite is sort of a weird terminology for it. I think it's one of the things that I value most my ability to do well. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? You feel confident with it. I don't know if I always feel confident and I think I still have room for improvement there, but in terms of what we actually do um, in terms of clinical practice, I think it's something that I have found tremendous value in people being able to do well. Some of my most meaningful moments as a clinician have come in situations of things like death notification. What's sort of strange is I've rarely received thank yous for good outcomes. The people who have good outcomes don't really sort of remember the emergency department or EMS. That's pretty rare. But families remember how you deliver death notification or how you deliver bad news. When I've had patients contact me after the fact, patients or patients' families, it's always been in the delivery of bad news that they remember how that news was delivered um, and appreciation for it being delivered with compassion. Mm-hmm. And so obviously in death notification, that's the patient's family. But mm-hmm. um, but I've had that for giving people other terrible diagnoses in the ED. We spend a lot of time teaching and talking about how to change the the tide and how to change the outcome. And that is a huge part of what we do and why we go out there every day. But I think after practicing medicine for a while, I realized that bad things are inevitable, but there's still a lot of good and solace and compassion to be had in being able to do those things really well. Yes. And I I think we will definitely talk about the family's experience or loved one's experiences. But in reviewing for this conversation, some recent articles that have been published in the PEC, I think it was fairly recent. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about Remley Crow's article about burnout. Yeah. And so I think it's also, I want to highlight how important it is for EMS providers to do this well for their own purposes, right? We've got the audience that we want, you know, the family, we want them to have a positive experience. And then we also want the clinicians themselves for it to be a, it could be a positive experience for them, at least not a negative one. Sometimes the terms are really hard to find because we talk about things in terms of sort of positive and negative. And it's like sort of a deeper level than that, right? Like there is no like joy without feeling. You can't experience what you do if you don't experience the humanity. And when I think about sort of the things that build up, the things that feel icky are the things that are sort of left unsaid. And fundamentally in everything we do, it's about being there to connect with other human beings. So no matter what the outcome, what the clinical circumstance, finding a way to connect with others and to process that and to fulfill your role in a truly excellent way, whether your role is 
to get ROSC and transport for the post-cardiac arrest or um, what our role actually is more often, which is to be able to deliver potentially the worst news that ever somebody's had in their entire life in a compassionate way that makes you feel like you didn't something really important for that family. I think that's fundamentally what we want and sort of how we derive. I don't know if like joy isn't the right word for it. I don't know what the right word for it is, but I think value, purpose, maybe purpose is the right word in what we do. So NAEMSP has a blog and you authored one of the article bites. It was number 33 by article bite, it's the summary of articles. The first author was Dr. Abraham Campos. Rebecca Cash's name was on there. They looked at a couple of things. Uh, it was a large survey, I think over 2,000 respondents. The results were that 77% of ALS providers had delivered at least one death notification in the past year. 33% of BLS people had done that, but only half of all those clinicians had received any training as part of their initial education. And I thought about, because I'm an initial ed educator, I thought about, do our students receive that training? And they do, but it's actually, it, it illuminated something interesting. They get it if they get our associate's degree. They do not get very much if they're going through our certificate track. So part of our associate's degree, you know, and this is like furthering this argument for degrees, because you get this type of enrichment, I think, with degrees. There's a class they take called end-of-life issues, and there's a whole day, a whole class dedicated to this procedure of how to deliver bad news or death notification, and they get to practice as part of that too. Do you want to talk about the procedure? I think the place to start is actually to start talking about why we need to think about it as a procedure. I think very often when we say, okay, what are the skills that you need as a paramedic or EMT? What are the procedures you need to be able to do? People list off the procedures. I need to know how to assist ventilations, and I need to know how to apply a splint, and how to apply and interpret a 12 lead, and perform these other skills. But conversations, notifications, interacting, those are a procedure And I think it's important to think of them as a procedure because that gives you a way to approach how to do it. Before I do an IV, right, I get all my things assembled. I have a way that I go about doing it. And eventually, as I become more proficient or then eventually become an expert, those things become more seamless. You know, I have the little things that I do to make it more comfortable, that make it the way I do it um, based on sort of my individual preferences and what works for me. Thinking about these difficult conversations in that way is really important so that people understand that there is a process. And as you're learning how to do that, having a script or a protocol to take you through that process so that you can develop a comfort that you see an initial path. And then you build on that over time and you become more proficient and certain other things become automatic. That's sort of the first shift is that thinking difficult conversations are a procedure and they should be thought of as a procedure. And they're a procedure that we need to actually teach people in initial education. And it's something that we need to give people feedback on and value it just like we value sort of all the other other things. Now that you think of it as a procedure, you know, the question is sort of, 
the what are the steps and how do you go through it? Just like any other procedure, there's multiple pathways to get there. I mean, I can tell you how I do it and give some references, but I think that there's multiple paths on how to do it. Did you get to your style by trying various styles within the framework? Or do you use different styles for different, as you're reading the room, kind of different scenarios? So there is some variability in reading the room, just like any other procedure, as you develop expertise, you're able to modify it for the the current circumstances. But when I was learning how to do this, I learned a basic protocol, and then I watched people do it. And that was part of med school? It was just part of- That was actually part of residency. Like- I mean, in med school, we had some conversation about delivering bad news, but in the end, what I learned didn't really apply to the circumstance of the emergency department because a lot of it was taught by people who already had pre-existing relationships with those patients, right? Like I'm a primary care doctor and I'm teaching you how to tell the patient who's been your patient for two years that they have cancer. In the emergency department, which is very similar to EMS, although the one huge difference, right, is that in EMS, you're in the patient's home versus this disconnected place of the emergency department, um, is that you don't usually have pre-existing relationships with these people. And so developing that sense of trust and making clear this picture that you did everything in your sort of, even though they don't know you, that you have compassion and you're invested in the outcome or you're invested in their feelings. That's a really high stakes thing because we don't have these pre-existing relationships. In residency, I learned, I remember having a lecture on this in residency, fourth year residents had to give a grand rounds. And when I was an intern, one of the fourth years gave a grand rounds on delivering bad news in the emergency department, specifically around death notification. And her name was Netta. And I I still remember her lecture. She did an an amazing job. And I think what the biggest thing I took away from her lecture was like step one. (laughs) So I think so many things are so intimidated because you're like, I don't even know where to start. It's this huge thing. But it was step one, which was identify what they know. Because the first place that you can go wrong big time is that you don't know where they are, right? Like what is their understanding of the current situation? Just like if I'm doing another procedure and like the first step is, is it indicated, you know, like where where are we? It's the same thing with this, you know, the conversation is clearly, you know, it's going to be indicated, but in the sense of where are they open up with understanding of what they're understanding of what is happening to be able to meet people where they are. And then it was a matter of watching other people who did it really well, who seemed to have the right body language, who used sort of the right words, and you learn to see people's responses. And then as I got more and more senior in my training, then I had, you know, the, the, the trials and failures, and it was examining when things went well, what I could have done differently. Um, Unfortunately, I've had a lot of experience giving death notifications in the ER and in the in the pre-hospital realm. But at the same time, I've learned to to value doing it well. Mm-hmm. I'm really concrete, and I and I that's what I want for the listeners is for them to have some actionable, tangible things that they can try on their next shift. So, 
When you talk about finding out what they know, what words do you use to assess that? So it depends if I'm talking to them on the phone or in person or part of the situation part, what I use like in the ED is the information EMS gives me. But even in the pre-hospital realm, sort of the first words I use is, what's your understanding of what has happened? Some of them may start talking and they have the full understanding and even say the words out loud to the room and to you that they know that their loved one is dead. Yep. And sometimes the response to that question is, are they dead? So they'll ask so a question back at They'll you. ask a question back. And those are actually the hardest situations because one of the things that you're trying to do is pull them from where they are and then build this sort of narrative and this key moment. And when the, the next question is, are they dead? And you give them that answer, then there's a, a variable period of time before they're going to sort of come back and like find the information. But I found that delaying giving them that answer is not helpful. <laughs> Sometimes that's the question, but very often what you'll find is that they don't understand what has happened. They'll start telling you the story or I'll just say, you know, tell me what's what's happened or what's your understanding of what's happened. They'll start giving you the HPI. We're home. They were in the other room. I don't know. Like they weren't responding. And then it's a matter of sort of collecting the information and saying, what you un- your understanding and interpreting what they've seen in in terms of what is actually happening. So you say like, okay, so you saw them collapse and you called nine one one and they instructed you to do CPR. And whenever I can insert something in the narrative that lets them know that they did everything right, because at the end of this, I don't want them to question like. <laughs> Did I wait too long? Did I do? Could I have changed the outcome? And I say, like, you did absolutely the right thing. You called 911. It's amazing that you did CPR. That's the most important thing that, you know, that you did. And then I'll say, so when we got here, this is what we found. Your mom was not breathing on her own and her heart has stopped beating. And it's really important that you use very clear terminology that anybody can understand in that moment. So I'll say something like that. And then I will go into the, what is it that we're actually doing for the, for the patient? Obviously these things vary because sometimes you're coming in and this is like a hospice person. They sort of know what's happened, but the first step should always be to understand where they are and what their understanding of what's happened. Because the last thing you want for this kind of conversation is a miscommunication. That makes sense. I think that's probably the the breaking of the ice, if you will. The kind of getting started is probably the hardest part because most paramedics, I mean, they talk to people all day long. They're in- empathetic enough to, to read people and know that, look, okay, once we've got started, I know how to talk to you, right? But I do think it's that beginning step. And it's interesting because what you are doing with that first step is you're allowing them, the family or loved one to first be the first to talk, right? They're the ones that can kind of get it started. The one thing I forgot as far as the first step. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I think the first step is introduce yourself and who you are and identify who they are and who this person is to them. I'm Ginger. I'm paramedic with, and then you can start talking. Um, Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of asking people, what's your relationship to the patient? Because- that's just a good umbrella rule to never assume you 
That is yes. soon the relationship. <laughs> yeah. Never. That goes Never. for any call, any situation. Never assume the relationship. Yeah, that will alienate it and it's hard to recover from that. Yeah. So in our notes, you talked about the architecture of creating meaningful moments. What is that? If you think about sort of your like own experience of bad outcomes or high stakes things, human beings, I think, desire meaningful moments as ugly as death can be, I think there is beauty to be found in allowing people to say their goodbyes in a way that respects sort of the the relationship and the love that is there. For me, that's what creates meaning in this. And thinking about how you orchestrate that as a moment, I think it's important for the families. I think it's important for the crews and the clinicians to recognize that this patient on the floor or in the bed or whatever is a human being, all the life that 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 entails. And so I'm a huge proponent of family presence during resuscitation. There's a lot of data to support that. Some feel like it's a burden on EMS or the clinicians or anything to attend to that. And I think I've gotten more value out of having families present for this, that it is absolutely worth what it takes to to be there. This allows sort of the creation of these sort of key moments around the around the time of death. You know, one of the the privileges of EMS, you know, people say, you know, there's not many roles in this world where you get to be there when people are born and when people die and you have this role to say sort of time, you know, time of death, how do you create that so that it's not like a transactional thing, like a checklist, like the time of death? How do you create it so it's imbued with the meaning that it really does does have? When we talk about family presence, one of the big things that people have a sense of is that they think a lot of families can't handle it. And I think that there is an interpretation. And sometimes people don't want to be there, right? Like the key is everything about this is about meeting people where they are. People mistake distress for people who cannot handle it. You know, I tell my students, like, if something happened to my parents, right, you think I can handle being present for a resuscitation, I would be like vomiting on the floor. I would be seemingly out of control, but I'm not out of control. What I need there is I need somebody assigned to me to like, let me know what's going on. But being there to sort of know that everything possible was done to sort of understand the efforts and then to have the ability to say goodbye um, before the time of death is called is really key. It's all about the orchestration. You know, in cardiac arrest, we talk about the orchestration all the time, right? The team-based management around high-performance CPR. But there is also a team-based management around families. And how do you interact with families and assigning somebody, which does not need to be, like one of the things I emphasize, everybody's like, well, you know, I'm just an EMT. I don't know all the medical like all, you know, what drugs they give and whatever, or I'm just, you know, like the fire captain on the scene. Like, I don't know those things. Like I can't be assigned to the family. You know enough and you're actually less likely to use terminology that 
the families don't understand. Like you can totally be there for the family and explain what's happening. What happens when people think somebody's out of control? It's that things escalate when distress is not attended to. If I'm super distressed and I'm trying to figure out what's happening and nobody is attending to me and they're telling me to go into the other room, then the only thing that happens is my distress escalates. But if somebody attends to my distress, right, explains what is happening, what are the things that are being done, then that escalation does not happen. And grief, grief and somebody being out of control are two very different things that I think requires sort of experience to, to read. Offering families the ability to be there in a way where they have a team member assigned to sort of support them and explain what is happening, I think is incredibly important. And if they say, no, I don't want, I've had families say like, I, I can't be in here, then by all means, they should not be in there. Um, but still assigning somebody to be in in the other room and give them updates is still a really important component of the team. I think that's a really important takeaway about the distress that we sometimes confuse that with aggression or a threat to our safety or something because someone is, you know, yelling or grabbing. Maybe they're grabbing, like if maybe if there's like a fire, like imagine this firefighter being there kind of standing back and they're kind of grabbing onto their shirt or their shoulders or something. It takes like some pretty nuanced understanding to know that that's not aggressive. That is clinging to <laughs> strength or something like that. Have you had people kind of get physical like that with you where they're like move towards you? Or has this ever come up where you're like, I feel unsafe right now? The situations where I've felt unsafe in the pre-hospital environment were not these particular situations. We're not around like death notification. I've definitely had those situations. Sure. But yeah. specifically around death notification, I have had uh, situations in the emergency department where families got very angry. And there was only once where I really felt that it was directed towards me. I think it's sort of checking my own response because there are times, right, where people scream and throw themselves on the floor and sort of, you know, come at you. And it's that same thing as saying, like, is this just, is this grief? For the most part, like, it hasn't been that anybody, I've only had to, like, fly out of the room backwards, <laughs> like, once. But I've delivered this news to large, you know, terrible news to large families um, and people who are very angry at the news multiple times. I've definitely sort of been like shoved and stuff, but it wasn't like out of aggression. It was a lot of things happening in the room. And I can distinctly remember like the last time I had to give news where things really sort of escalated in the emergency department. Um, really, it sort of like ended up with me on the floor with the patient's mother just holding her. Right. She wasn't trying to hurt. She, she just needed to be held. And, um, you always have to stay safe, clearly, but sometimes it's hard to say is like, what is our flight response responding to in that particular moment? And I can say that many times where my flight response has been like, whoa, for the most part, it's actually been grief, not aggression. In those particular situations, I think making sure that they know that you did everything possible, that 
you feel compassion towards them and their loved one is really key because fundamentally they need to walk away from this moment having a sense of trust that you really did all those things. So I'm going back to that study about the only half of the clinicians reporting death notification training. What I don't think I kind of emphasize and I want to now is the link to burnout with that. We often think that it's our exposure to death or gruesome things that's resulting in burnout, when in reality, more and more we're finding out that burnout happens from many things. But one thing is when our resources don't match the demands. And so the demand of the job of a paramedic is to certainly do this procedure, but the resources, they've not had the foundational education to do that. So it looks like you made a video uh, at the beginning of COVID or towards the beginning of COVID. Was that an anticipation of increased deaths during COVID? That's exactly what it was. At that time that video was made, in New York City, they were seeing a record number of pre-hospital cardiac arrests, like 400 a day for FDNY alone. On a state level, we were having discussions about developing an evidence-based protocol around crisis standards of care for cardiac arrest. And so we were seeing record numbers, which turned out to happen everywhere, both from COVID and also people not seeking care because they did not want to get COVID in the hospital. And in addition, we had this anticipation that we might need to implement a protocol where we were not resuscitating people who met certain criteria in an evidence-based way because at the time, there were so many unknowns and so many EMS providers were already getting sick that we were worried about what was the risk of EMS providers resuscitating a cardiac arrest for somebody who, for example, was like an unwitnessed asystole and had a you know, less than 2% chance of survival. And we were trying to do that in an evidence-based way. And so at the time, we we're trying to anticipate, you know, like what are going to be the needs? How can we start having this conversation with EMS clinicians, knowing that there was not a lot of education on how to do termination of resuscitation? And so it was made over Zoom because we couldn't get together in person to make it. And I was, I did this with Kate O'Donnell, who was actually the clinical coordinator at the time for our, our program, and she helped interview people. Our intention was to interview clinicians at all different levels of practice, from EMT to paramedic to physician, and sort of talk about all the different aspects of how do you have this conversation? How do they have this conversation? Why is it so important? And so, yeah, that's what that's what we did. I sat in my lonely little room as my family lived someplace else. This was like April 2020, uh, editing this video together. And a lot of what we predicted came true. And there's a lot of things that we thought we knew that we didn't know, but I'm still glad we made it. And I saw it's been viewed almost 2000 times. I just saw that because I, I went back and looked at it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. So what is this grieving thing that looks like an acronym? That is an approach to death notification. And I think this goes to the procedure. And I think that this is a really wonderful protocol 
for how to do this. It's really a framework. And I'm not a huge uh, acronym or mnemonic person, but I, I think this is one where it's not the acronym or the mnemonic, it's the process that's outlined by it that I think is really useful. And there was a study, I initially found it because there was a study from North Carolina that used this as an educational platform for pre-hospital providers, sort of in sync with when we introduced termination of resuscitation protocols pre-hospital, right? One of the big, I would call it like sort of general failures of medical direction around termination of resuscitation protocols is that we reviewed all the evidence, we put in these protocols in place, which are totally a good idea from, from both survival, right? Like we need to stay on scene to work these, but we don't need to sort of use the other resources. But we didn't teach people how to give death notification and how to like outline this as a process. And so I think where things went, where either the protocols were not followed was because people didn't know how to have these conversations or if they were followed and things didn't go well and people's experience of that was very poor. It's not that there was something wrong with termination of resuscitation. It was that we didn't actually teach people the procedure around doing termination of resuscitation, um, how to interact with the public who sort of expected their family to be thrown into an ambulance and driven to the hospital. So the grieving mnemonic has multiple components, and I think it is actually really worth going through if you would like to do that. I would. When I looked at it, I'm like, that's a lot of letters. So I wonder- It's a lot of letters. And so if we go through it, it'll make a lot of sense. So the first part, the G of grieving is just gather, and really that's gather the necessary people. Pre-hospital, right? Like that's the family members that are there who want to be part of the conversation. One of the things I've also done um, in the hospital, right? I have like a social worker or a chaplain, um, but sometimes I ask, you know, say like, we're going to talk about what's going on. Is there anybody else that you want to be part of the conversation? And I will get family on the phone. Family, I've had pastors on the phone because one of the things that you're hoping to do is sort of, one, give them as much support for things that are familiar as possible. But I also think putting them in the position of delivering this news to all the different people in their lives is also another burden that you're placing on the family who's already on a lot of stress. So having multiple people hear it from you is a really good idea. So I've definitely taken a few moments. I'm like, is there anybody else that you want to be part of this conversation? And they'll tell you, and I'll like dial them up the phone and put speakerphone and introduce myself to them as well. Right. That's really smart. Otherwise they have to tell the story a million times. They have to make a very painful conversation. And if somebody else can hear it, then they can be present and somebody else can notify the people that need to be notified. Right. Um, That's good. And sometimes, you know, like they want there to be a, a prayer or, or, you know, or something. And um, I'm not a very religious person, but this is like times where like they want me to pray with them. I will pray with them. Having like a pastor or such whoever it is that they need, um, I think is useful. So that's the G, it's the gather. The use of phones, I think really does improve this. So like waiting for people to get there, et cetera. Like, and if somebody's driving on the phone, I'm like, oh, I recommend that you like pull over and stop. I just want everybody to be safe. The other thing is resources. That includes things like a a chaplain on on the phone. On scene, 
I often use very often there's a police presence. The utility of that is that we're going to talk about sort of the questions that come after about what do we do now? The police officers have a lot of experience with this, and they're the ones who are able to answer those questions. So having the resources from that that perspective. So we're at G and R. The I is identify, which is the identify yourself and identify who they are. Very often, I actually sort of do this first. I think it makes more sense to do it first, but then it wouldn't fit in the grieving thing. But I say, you know, like, Amaya, I'm the... And one of the physicians who works with this EMS service. And then the key is identifying who they are, who this loved one is to them. And then the other part of the I is not just identifying. I identify who I am sort of front, but then that's where you do the identify what they know. And sometimes, right, like multiple other people have arrived on scene or there's people on the phone, right? Like very often they'll call and they'll say, the ambulance is here. A terrible thing has happened. The key thing is not to spend forever on this, but I just say like, what do you know about what's happened? Very simple. And then sometimes they really know what's happened or you get the next question, are they dead? And then you sort of jump down the algorithm. But most often they'll just give you the the story. And I use that as points to reinforce the good things that they have done along the way, because I don't want those questions left. And also get sometimes very important information. The E is educate. And that's the, where I like meet them where they are, right? They'll say, all I know is that my, my wife fell down in the bathroom and I went in there and she wouldn't respond to me. And I called 911. I meet them where they are. And I come back and educate about what has happened and what we are what we are doing and that this is really an opportunity to make it clear to them that you know the things that need to happen are happening when we went to staying on scene to run resuscitation right one of the huge things that people were expecting is like why aren't they going to the hospital like why are you still here and this also gave the opportunity to educate even in real time about what we were doing. So like the most common things I'll be like, okay, when we, when we got here, um, you did absolutely the right thing by calling 911. When we got here, um, she was not breathing on her own. Her heart was not beating because neither one of those things are happening. What we're trying to do is support her. Currently somebody is, is breathing for her and we are doing CPR, um, which is, essentially trying to restart her heart. We're giving her medications. We're using electricity if needed to get her heart into a a rhythm. So that they understand that like their heart is not beating. They are not breathing on their own. And it gives the opportunity. And if they say things like, why aren't you going to the hospital, which I've heard less now than I did when we first released protocols, I'll say things like, and it's really important for us to get her her heart restarted. We know that if we are unable to get her heart restarted where she is, you know, to do really high quality CPR, that it is unlikely or is not going to be restarted, right? So you're ready sort of firing the warning shot that like, if we are unsuccessful, this whole endeavor is going to be unsuccessful. Yeah. It's like setting expectations. 
setting the expectations, right? And and some of these, right, like you respond, you read the situation, right? Like unwitnessed arrest and asystole, you're going to set the expectations. A witnessed arrest with bystander CPR and a shockable rhythm, the expectations are a little bit different. That patient might actually be transported for something like ECMO. So you're going to set the expectations very clear based on those signals. You know what the prognosis is based on data, right? Like this is someplace that we have tons of data to know what those pretest probabilities of something like a ROSC are, even with your best efforts. We're describing the grieving algorithm in the context of an ongoing resuscitation, right? Sometimes this is somebody arrives on scene and they're already dead, or you come and they are unresuscitatable <laughs> completely and, you know, they have lividity. So those steps are jump through and what you're educating them on is that her heart wasn't beating. She wasn't breathing on her own. Based on our assessment, her heart stopped beating a long, too long ago for us to, to change the outcome. And then the next component is verify. So in the context of an ongoing resuscitation, there can be a lot of time for education as you're updating them on what's going on, showing the clinical picture going one way or the other. This is where we're going to use, you know, like the word death. So if they've already died, I would say like, I'm sorry to give you the terrible news that your mom has died. Um, in the context of an ongoing resuscitation, this is when I talk about the architecture of creating a moment. Because one of the things that I try and do is give them the opportunity to be part of the moment of the time of death. They're in the room or in their, the next room or whatever. And so I've set the expectation, right? They've gotten a few updates. And I've set the expectation is we've been doing CPR for 20 minutes. In that time, her heart has not shown sort of any, any response. Um, it does not look like we're going to be able to restart her heart. She is not breathing on her own at all. In two minutes, Okay, we are going to do one, another one more check to see whether or not we've been successful in restarting her heart. And if we were unable to do so, we are going to stop resuscitation. Um, and at that point, she will be dead. And then I say, do you want to be there? And very often people say, yes, and I will assign somebody. Usually this is things as I have them there and I give them and I make room, right? You coordinate it just like you coordinate with your team. And I let them hold their hand and say things and do whatever and be part of that moment. And then you create this whole moment where you say, okay, everybody, just like you're going to summarize, like we've been doing CPR for 20 minutes. The rhythm has been PA or asystole the entire time, right? It's like about this creating this professional moment thinks there's been, you know, no response to this. Um, I, it tells me like, we are going to do a pulse check in 15 seconds. I do the whole, you know, I say like, Joe, will you pre-charge the monitor? Like Jane, will I want you to be in charge of a, assessing for a pulse. And then you do things and then you pause and then it's whatever rhythm it is. And so it's a sister on the monitor. Jane says there is no pulse. And then I say, okay, time of death X, right? You create this moment where the family gets to, to be there and be part of it and understand everything that happened. 
you know, they would say like, can they hear me? And I say like, I don't know what people can hear, but I know that this is not a time to let things be unsaid. And so bringing people there and every once in a while, I mean, I've definitely had ones like orchestrate this whole moment and by golly, there is a pulse. And I'm like, holy shit. (laughs) But, you know, then you look like a hero, you know, and then you're setting expectations about neuro and tax survival. I think that those moments are incredibly, incredibly meaningful. And the thing you have to expect that happens next is that that person is going to collapse. Right. And I have no expectations for them and how they're going to interact. And my entire role is to just be there. And that collapse, that wail, that silence, it may be of variable amount of time. And it's about just being there for them in that in that moment. I've done this like multiple times in the emergency department. I've done this in the field. And I've never regretted it. I've never regretted it. And every single time, you know, like I, I have like the lump in my throat because I know, I think that's in a strange way, sort of like where some of the magic of what we do happens is that we have the privilege of being there in this truly terrible moment and giving somebody the opportunity to to say goodbye in a in an environment where they know that everybody there is is invested. And I think the level of sort of dissatisfaction and questioning and all those things that can happen retrospectively, sort of like the trauma for families and the trauma for providers is like, if we don't feel like everybody's on sort of the same team and sort of invested in this outcome and like really cares about this human being, right? Mm -hmm. It's like that shared emotional experience. Everybody's kind of experiencing it the same. We're having different responses to it, but at least we're all present and kind of going through the same experience together. And so that's, you know, like the verify, which can be, they're already dead, you know, like a a short thing that you expect them to like. It can be short if they're already dead, but I think the verify can also be creating this moment and definitely using things like time of death. They are dead, not like they passed away, they moved on, they did whatever. Like there cannot be a lack of clarity about whether or not they are dead. And then the grieving has this underscore, which is give space. You know, that's what I talked about before, which is there can be silence, there can be wailing, there can be whatever there needs to be. You don't need to say anything. I think that's the biggest advice is turn off all the monitors, right? Like turn off all those things and just like, let it, let it be, you know, in the field, make sure that your radios are on like low. If you need to hear something else that's going on, but like, you don't want a bunch of stuff happening because it's about orchestrating this, this particular moment. And Um, not feeling like you have to say anything. You can just be there. You can just be there. You can just be there. One of the things that people feel awkward about is feeling sad or crying or getting choked up. And I think it's normal to be sad. I don't think, I think I, um, I can't think of a single death notification of made in the ED where my voice didn't crack or like a termination. I just, if I stop feeling 
sad, right, that somebody has died, then I feel like I've lost a really important part of myself. I think people worry that it makes it about you, right? But if you're not flailing and crying and things, right? Like, I think most families feeling that you were invested in what happened and that you care about their loved one as a person, it's okay to cry. I think touch is about reading people's body language, but I often hug families and sometimes they're there by themselves, right? So um, I just, I don't know. I think that there's, people think that they have to hold it in all inside. Like you don't have to hold it in all inside. Just be a human being. It's okay. Families appreciate it. The last couple parts are inquire nuts and bolts and give. Inquire is after this variable period of space, ask them um, if they have any questions. The most common question that you get is like, what do I do now? Which takes you into the nuts and bolts because most people don't plan, right? There are some of these situations that are planned, but most people don't know what to do with their dead grandpa in their living room. You know, like, what do I do? Like. (laughs) Are you going to leave them here? Like what happens next? Sometimes, you know, there's other questions. I would say like 95% of the time is this recognition. What do I do now? And that's where gathering those resources, like the police early on. And the key thing is if you don't know, just say, I don't know, but I'm going to get the police officer to come over and talk to you and they'll help you figure those things out about what sort of the next step is. And then the last G is the give, which is give them your contact information. So the key thing to say, like, just so you know, like, this is, we're from, I'm the medical director of Gates EMS. So I say, like, you know, we're from Gates EMS. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions about um, about anything. It may not be on your mind right now, but most of the time they don't call other than to thank you, actually. (laughs) The key thing is, it gives you things like, I'm not done with you. Like the transaction is not just over. Mm-hmm. I'm still invested in you. Um, in the ED, I've actually, this actually happened pretty recently. I had a patient die in the who came in ambulatory and he died of a ruptured aortic dissection in the ED. And he was like awake and alert. I was having a very hard time with this. And then mm-hmm. I got a message that his family wanted to talk to me. And mm-hmm. I'm like, Right. Like my mind goes into the worst place. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my God, they're going to suit. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Like, and they just had some questions about because I had encouraged them to get an autopsy. I had suspected he had a neurotic dissection, but unfortunately he died, like as I was getting him loaded into the scanner. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I had told them that when I delivered the death notification, because they had quite sometimes the other big question you get is, what did they die of? Right. And mm-hmm. this is often it's like, mm. I don't know, it could be a heart attack, it could be pain with him. It was, um, I think he I think he had the aortic dissection. And I asked them to get an autopsy, because I thought it would help give closure to them and to me um, mm-hmm. somewhat selfishly. And that's what he did. He actually had a ruptured aortic dissection. And I was so nervous to talk to his sister. And when I finally called her, 
we really had the most wonderful conversation where she had found that they couldn't release the autopsy results to them too. And she wanted to, she had questions about that. And we went through his care in the ED and we think that when people call us, we live in such a culture that we think if somebody wants to reach out to us after that, it's because they want to like sue us or something. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they just want more info for, for closure. They just want closure. And um, for me, that case had happened like two weeks before. And I still think, I mean, my paranoia about aortic dissection mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. still high. Hold on. My kids are restarting video games. It's okay. They can go for it. We'll they just can have well. Do you hear yelling at his brothers? Yeah, but it's kind of charming and good. He is definitely charming. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's not going to bother me. I'll let you know. Okay. So that's the last part. The, the most important thing is that it's a way of continuing the sense that you are invested in them, mm-hmm. right? That you are, you have this shared experience and the transaction is not, is not over. Right. That's the grieving algorithm. I think the thing that's really important is when all is said and done, you know, and you've done this, you know, warm handoff to law enforcement or whoever in your area responds to these cases, um, is don't leave a mess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in that video, we interviewed an EMT named Roan, who actually was also a respiratory therapist who I work with in the ED, but he used to work as an EMT as well. He had, I think, what's one of the best lines in the whole video, which was, he said, it's not like your painters coming in just to paint their house. I knew exactly what he meant, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's a transaction. He's like, right. you gotta, like, you don't want the family after you leave to mm-hmm. to have a picture in their mind with every wrapper they pick mm-hmm. up off the off the floor, right? right? Right. Lots of things, you know, you can't remove tubes. You have to leave those things in place. Um, in New York, there's all these rules about they can't touch the body, like after they're dead, et cetera, mm-hmm. if it's going to be an ME case, et cetera. But the idea is that you're going to clean up, put the furniture back, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't want to like leave that burden on the, on the family. Um, you want every part of the experience to be this like coordination of we're professional, but we also sort of like care deeply about you and your, and your family and people who care deeply about other people don't leave trash in their house. Mm-hmm. It's more like you came over for dinner. More like you came over for dinner, right? Help clean up. Yeah. I mean, my kids love me and they live lots of trash in my house, but that's a totally different relationship. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, there's a book called, um, Compassionomics. Hmm, never heard of it. Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference by Anthony Mazzarelli and Steve Treziak. It's about the benefit, like the true benefits of compassion for patients, but also for clinicians. We think that compassion is just like the warm and fuzzy stuff. And I think when we call it the warm and fuzzy stuff, we act like it's the optional part of our education Mm. and our practice. It's not optional that we know the cardiac arrest algorithm, right? Like clearly like that's a must and you must recognize a stroke and you must do all these things. And of course those are all musts. Um, But the compassion part, that's optional. I'm not paid to feel something for you. (laughs) When we leave that as the optional part and we say in the current uh, climate, say like these interactions with our patients are like transactions. 
with compassion optional, we not only hurt our patients, we hurt ourselves. It's funny because, you know, we talk about the education thing and I, um, there's a, a few forays I've made into that. The only quality improvement project I've ever done where the lone intervention was education was around termination of resuscitation. And that's when I came on as a, a medical director at an agency and I looked at their rate of transports for patients who met criteria for termination of resuscitation in the field. I realized that there was a knowledge gap of what the not only what the expectation was, but a comfort in performing this as a procedure. And so that's what we did our training on. And we went from like 90% transports to less than 5%. So in QI, we talk about really education is the sole intervention. But in that case, it was. But from the my paramedic student perspectives, I used to give this just as a lecture. You know, like I give a lecture on how to do it. But you know, one of the things that you talked about was the importance of the ability to practice it. Like mm-hmm. there is no procedure where we give them a lecture like this is how we give them a lecture. I mean, can you imagine giving a lecture like this is a lecture on how to do an IV mm-hmm. and you don't give them the opportunity to practice it and get feedback. And then you say, now go forth and like put IVs in real people without ever having the ability or like I give a lecture on how to do bag mask ventilation and then never give you the opportunity to practice it and then expect you to go do that on real mm-hmm. patients. When we do a day of cardiac arrest simulations, right, each one is a little bit different, but we have one um, that's a termination of resuscitation scenario. And there are lots of learning points about running a cardiac arrest resuscitation. But from a cognitive load perspective, I videotape them. and I'm like, oh, you can watch and decide what you could have done better from the resuscitation. But the entire debrief, the entire point is to talk about how do they interact with the family? What words did they say? How did they approach this? We did this. And then I had a student who was in his field clinical who implemented it. He created this moment. He like brought the family to the bedside to say goodbye. And he said it was one of the most meaningful experiences And it's because he overcame his discomfort. He'd had the opportunity to practice and like think about how we would do this and apply it, that he did it in real life. And now he is going to be able to model that for others who are there who can see how it gets, how that, how to do that and how it gets done. Just like most of the things I say and do are by watching other people say or do that and be like, ooh, I like that. Let me try that one on for size. For years, I've encouraged paramedics to get degrees. But when I carefully listened to the stories of paramedics, I realized there are challenges that have to be addressed. Things like 2448s, childcare, mortgages. I'm pleased to share that I have an answer that matches what I know about the working paramedic who tells me they are ready to pursue a degree. Eastern Kentucky University offers a bachelor's in emergency medical care that is 100% online and allows college credit for existing state or national registry certifications. EKU is a nationally known program, and I trust them to take good care of Medic Mindset listeners who want to start their journey toward a degree. You can go to the show notes for this episode for a link or simply use go.eku.edu backslash medic to get started.